0: Thank you for joining us for
1: another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Brian Watt, morning news anchor for KQED, and I am especially happy to be your moderator for this afternoon's program with political strategist Paul Begala. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series. We'd like to thank our members donors, and supporters for making this and all our other programs possible. We're grateful for the support and hope others will follow their example and support the club during these uncertain times. If you're watching along with us and you have a question you'd like for me to ask Paul, please put it in the text chat on YouTube. I will get them later in the program. And now I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, Paul Begala. Paul is the author of the new book, you're fired, the perfect guide to beating Donald Trump. It examines President Trump's political tactics and lays out the strategies Democrats must employ to unseat him in November. Paul has spent about three decades, maybe a little more in political consulting. And this is where I get to disclose to you that I met Paul close to the beginning of those three decades and worked on one of his early campaigns. In 1991, he and his partner in strategy and craftiness, James Carville, took on a U.S. Senate campaign in a special election in Pennsylvania. Most people thought that the campaign of Senator Harris Wofford was hopeless. He was running against the formidable former Pennsylvania governor and U.S. Attorney General Dick Thornburg, but Carville and Begala, as they were known at the time, Took Wofford from way down in the polls at the start to a resounding victory on election day. I was Senator Wofford's personal assistant, so I got to watch from a front row seat Paul Begala do something many thought was impossible. The next year, 1992, Paul Begala helped Bill Clinton get elected president and then served as a close advisor to President Clinton throughout his term, helping to develop and detail the Clinton political agenda. In addition to Paul's continued political consulting work, he is a commentator on CNN and a research professor of public policy at Georgetown University. So today we're going to talk about the political landscape in the U.S., waiting for lots of news out of the political campaign today, and the outlook for Democrats in the 2020 election. Paul Bagala, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Brian, it is great to see you again. Honored to be at the Commonwealth Club and a pleasure to be with uh, you again, my old friend. I, I, uh, I'm proud that you went straight, that you got out of politics and you're in journalism, uh, the, the, a path trod by Tim Russert and some of the great journalists I've ever known. Uh, and so uh, it, it's a real pleasure to see you again. I wish it were in person. So let's start with your book, the
0: very first words of it, the first chapter called Mea Culpa. And you say from the beginning that everybody got 2016 wrong, so I'm in good company. So what were Democrats missing four years ago
1: that they really need to understand this year? Uh, It's that you you can't be distracted um, by Trump. First sentence of the book, you're right, is that the first law of politics that Bill Clinton taught me was that elections are about the voters, not the politicians. It's about the people, not the candidates. And uh, boy, that proved out in in his case. He's a great man, and I love him. But he defeated a Medal of Honor recipient, Bob Kerry, surpassingly heroic American, Bob Dole, who also was a war hero, and George H. W. Bush, a war hero. Clinton himself never served. So it's not just it's not just the personalities. It's not just the, even the character. It has to be about people's lives. And so when I ran ads that said uh, Trump says misogynistic things. He, he brags about grabbing women. He says racist things. He mocks a man's disability. He insults POWs. That's all true. I don't regret them. But it was necessary but not sufficient because I didn't say how that affects the life of a retiree in Pennsylvania, a farmer in Wisconsin, an office worker in Michigan. Those folks were left out of my advertising and my critique of Trump. And and I think that's uh, on me. It's on everybody else who did it, but it's particularly on me. And that that is really the biggest reason I wrote this book is I learned from that experience not to be distracted by what I believe is Trump's piggish personal behavior, not to excuse it, but to say, oh, by the way, he's in court trying to take away your health care. And even if he was a lovely man who never used foul language and never said racist things, he's still trying to take away your health care. And that actually matters more in people's lives.
0: The thing that's mattering in most of our lives right now and you mentioned health care, is the coronavirus. That is the entire second chapter of your book. And you spend a very, very thorough chapter laying out how the federal government could have been prepared for the coronavirus. How important is this context to voters?
1: Yeah, I think it's enormously important. You know, nobody, no sensible person blames Donald Trump, for the virus. Viruses happen. And yet we do require our president to respond and to be responsible. And you know, we went through this in the Obama presidency twice. First, we had the swine flu. A lot of people feel like we didn't handle it very well. I I think even President Obama would tell you we didn't handle it very well. It was the first year of his term. Things were falling apart on the economy. We are engaged in two wars that were not going well. But again, that's on us as a country, as a government. But they learned from that. So by the time 2014 comes around, Obama's been president now for five years, Ebola arises and he snaps to it. He dispatches teams from the army into Central Africa. They isolate the virus. They treat the victims. There were only four cases of Ebola in America, one death. It's a a horrible disease, but the pandemic was contained. It didn't become a pandemic because America acted. Um, And so learning from that, President Obama then set up a permanent structure in the National Security Council, put a, a rear admiral in charge, a guy named Tim Zeimer, totally non-political national security professionals designed to head off pandemics when they come again and they're inevitable. He also created lots of funding in the Centers for Disease Control to forward deploy American scientists and doctors all around the world. They're in 30 countries. So we were prepared. And for reasons I cannot fathom, and I guess I don't need to know why, I just need to know what, President Trump took office, he dismantled that infrastructure, perhaps because it was Obama's, who cares? But it it was effective, it was working, he fired Admiral Zimmer, he fired everybody in the Pandemic Response Unit, he cut the funding for the CDC's pandemic response by 80%, and one of the countries they had to pull out of was China. So when the pandemic came, this is Chinese responsibility, but, you know, as the greatest freest country in the world. We were there. We had been there and would have helped. I really believe that. So what he did and what he failed to do is critically important. Then when experts were telling him it was terrible and serious, he was telling us it was no big deal. He was telling us that President Xi had it under control. He even shipped millions of pounds, 17 tons, uh, our personal protective equipment from America to China because he felt like he kept telling us there's no big deal here. So what he did and what he failed to do is his responsibility, not the disease. But there is a reason why we've had more deaths than any other country on earth. We have 4% of the world's population. We have the wealthiest country. We have the best public health infrastructure. And yet we have 25% of all the deaths. That's on our government. That is why we pay taxes. And I think people should hold that against Mr. Trump, not the existence of the disease.
0: And do you feel like that should be part of the political strategy as these last months of the campaign go? Because I I read some articles about all that you just laid out, um, but I don't, I feel like just in the news cycle, in just the crazy world that we live in now, people might forget that
1: or it just, it might not occur to them. Well, that's the job of the campaign. You know, your job as a newsman is to tell us what's new. So something that happened a couple of years ago, uh, I I really don't fault you or my colleagues at CNN. They can't repeat every day, oh, three years ago, Trump fired the pandemic response unit. That's not your job as a journalist. That's a campaign's job. And Joe Biden is very well positioned to carry that argument because you know who Obama's Ebola czar was who shut down that pandemic? Ron Klain, Joe Biden's chief of staff. So Joe knows personally The steps that he and President Obama took and that his chief of staff, Ron Klain, took to squelch that pandemic. So Joe needs to take that case uh, to the American people. I think he's doing a good job of it. But I think it's been it's been uh, really important for the campaign to prosecute not just, oh, things are bad, fire the president, but to explain to folks why. And it breaks my heart, honestly, to say this. 160,000 people are dead. You know, we're going to lose 50 people during this broadcast. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, uh, other countries, broad, diverse, complicated countries like like uh, uh, India, like uh, uh, New Zealand, uh, like Canada, they're handling this very well. And when I compare ourselves to countries that I think are less wealthy and powerful than we are and they're doing a better job – That means that the government is not serving us right. And that means the president's not doing his job. And Joe needs to say that.
0: Let me get a question from the audience in here. It's a a little bit of a topic change, but still, this really is about the campaign that's underway. Uh, One audience member wants to know Are messages from the Lincoln Project and other groups, a little outside campaigns, swaying Trump voters,
1: in your opinion? I think they are. I think they are, Brian. And the, the, the guys and gals of the Lincoln Project, are fantastic. This has been surreal for me because I've spent my career fighting against George Conway, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, the people. Tara Setmeyer is a pal of mine from CNN. She's a conservative Republican. They're all now in the Lincoln Project, and 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 so now I'm essentially uh, you know uh, arguing the same case, but they argue in a very different way. It's been very instructive for me to learn from them. They understand Republican voters far better than I ever will, and one of the things that they have come to believe is that for a lot of Republican voters, a lot of Trump voters, when people like me complain that Trump's a bully, they like it because he's our bully, right? Oh, he's standing up to evil Nancy Pelosi or the evil left or the atheists or Antifa or whoever it is they're upset with. Lincoln Project doesn't say Trump is a big fat bully. They say he's a wimp. He's weak. He can't walk down a ramp at West Point. He can't hold a glass of water. He can't complete a thought. When you take on an autocrat wannabe and you take away the strongman mantle, it really disempowers him with his followers. And so I, I think the Lincoln Project uh, men and women are just geniuses, and I've learned a lot from them. It's really odd being on the same side of those folks, but I really respect them. You know, I, I, I hope, I hope that I would be enough of a patriot if my party nominated a Donald Trump of the left for me to do the same thing.
0: You, you did mention Nancy Pelosi back there. And I want to, since we are sort of in the region of Nancy Pelosi, um, you spend a good moment in your book really talking about her as a political genius. But you do point out that uh, she's not subject to the Electoral College. So what is Nancy Pelosi's political genius? And how can a presidential campaign use
1: that genius, apply it? In fact, if there's a hero, this if there's a goat in the book, it's me because I screwed it up in 2016. If it's a hero, it's Nancy. I am her greatest admirer. Um, I've said this for years. I've worked in with and around probably seven speakers. I have never seen a legislative leader so able. Uh, I, I even think she's better than Sam Rayburn. I'm serious. I think she's the greatest speaker in American history. Here's why. She knows power. She knows policy. She knows politics. So on the politics side, my side, here's, here's what she did. She looked around the country and districts were largely gerrymandered against her party because Democrats got wiped out in 2010. So the Republicans, you know, they were able to draw the maps in a very favorable way for them. She needed to pick up 23 seats currently held by Republicans. She picked up 41. So I studied very carefully. I helped. I say I volunteered. I no longer advise politicians, any of them. I don't do super PAC work. I don't do any of that. But I'm allowed to volunteer. So after Trump won, I went to see her and I said, "Okay, Nancy. I'll go anywhere you want. I'll do anything you want. The only condition is you can't pay me. And she laughed. She said, well, you, you, you drive a hard bargain. So I went all around the country uh, uh, to races that she had targeted. And this is what I saw. She recruited diverse candidates. She put a real premium on diversity. America's first woman speaker understood that when you expand the talent pool, you get more talent. So Democrats ran more women and more people of color than ever before. In fact, the majority of their candidates were women or people of color. Uh, number one, number uh, and actually one A in diversity, also diversity of life experience. Lots and lots of military folk where Democrats have been weak. Lots of intelligence folks. Uh, even an NFL football player, my friend Colin Allred. Even a mixed martial arts, a former mixed martial arts professional fighter, Sharice David, a, a Native American from Kansas who won. So so she recruited brilliantly and with great diversity. So her candidates looked like America. Second, she did what the social workers say. They say you have to meet people where they live. That is to say she ran moderate candidates in moderate districts. None of those 41 Democrats who won Republican districts, none of them ran ads attacking Trump. None of them ran ads calling for impeachment. None of them ran on Russia and Mueller. All of them ran on kitchen table economic issues principally healthcare. Um, so she understood this. And, and I, I've been doing this a long time, but I watched and learned and I a tiny bit participated. And it was really an epiphany for me. Because all I do every night, even if I'm not on TV, I go out in the yard and scream about how uh, I can't stand Trump, right? But she saw past that. It's not like she likes him, but she's smarter. He's a lot smarter than me and a lot smarter than Mr. Trump. And so she understood you had to talk to people about what they cared about. And the fact that Nancy Pelosi or Paul Begala doesn't like Trump is news from nowhere. But the fact that we have a plan to help you pay for your daughter's insulin, right, or your grandmother's nursing home. Wow. Oh, that's different. And that affects my life a lot more than me hating on Trump. So anyway, I love her. I think she's an absolute genius.
0: There is c- concern among the audience members about voter suppression, about our ability to vote in this Election one says 25 million Americans are about to lose their homes because they can't pay rent. If these people have to move now, how is this going to affect registrations and in turn their ability to vote in this
1: election? Well, the first thing everyone can do, including me, including you, vote.org. It's a non website, and it will tell you whether your registration is up to date and accurate. It will check for you, vote.org. So every citizen should be registered. And I mean this, as partisan as I am, I'd much rather have somebody register, participate and vote for Trump than just to sit it out. I really believe in the wisdom of crowds. And I really believe that if everybody is in this together, more people are going to accept the result. So that's first. Check your registration status. But for folks who are at risk of being evicted, for folks who are at risk of being purged, and I I walk through this in the book, how the then secretary of state, now governor of Georgia, purged voters from his state, disproportionately African-American, how they manipulated the number of polling places to disadvantage the Black community. None of these things would have been legal under the Voting Rights Act that John Lewis bled for, but the Supreme Court eviscerated the hard Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County versus Holder case. So unscrupulous politicians like the, the, the governor of Georgia can do this now. So Democrats have to organize around it. They have to get people registered. They're working their hearts out and they're doing this, but they have to overcome this. Uh, A couple other things. I I would vote by mail. The president is not telling the truth. It is perfectly safe. It is immune from fraud. Uh, The Brennan Center for Justice at NYU did a study. Colorado votes 100% by mail. So they studied Colorado. The incidence of fraud was 0.0000001 percent. One ten millionth of one percent. So it's absolutely ethical. It's perfectly safe. Now they're crippling the Postal Service to manipulate, to, to, because usually maybe five or 10 percent vote absentee and vote by mail. We're going to have over 50 percent. So there will be a flood of absentee ballots. And and this uh, partisan hack who Trump has put in charge of Postal Service is trying to uh, reduce their ability to handle the capacity. So a couple of things. Pelosi is fighting to fully fund the Postal Service in the emergency bill that they're working on. But also we can do things to help every citizen. Many states allow you to vote in a drop box. It's perfectly secure. You don't even have to put it in the mail, though. You just drive by the firehouse or the police station or the government office. And and these things are all secure. And I've seen them. They're all locked up. They they do it in Ohio. They do it in Michigan. They do it in Pennsylvania. They do it in lots of places. You can push your county registrar uh, wherever you are to allow Dropbox voting so that you don't even have to bother, uh, you know, my mailman's a guy named Jesse. I love him. I don't even have to bother Jesse. I can just go and drop my ballot off. Another thing people can do, particularly younger folk, volunteer to be a poll worker. The majority of poll workers in America are over 60. A huge percentage are over 75. These folks are most at risk for COVID. I mean, we're all at risk, but if you're over 60, over 75, much more so. So younger folks should consider, I don't really want to put anybody at risk, but should consider if they feel they can do it safely. Mask up, PPE, gloves, even a face shield. Volunteer to be a poll worker. Set your partisan hat aside. Serve your community. Serve your country. That will lessen the lines. So when folks do vote in person, the lines will be shorter because we have more poll workers who can check you in and and, uh, and help you out. So there are things we can do, but your, your listener is exactly right to be worried about this, Brian, because I, I am too. I've never seen such a sustained attack on the right to vote since we passed the voting rights act
0: you have me remembering as a journalist going to early voting polling places the really the big county registrar building in los angeles county for the first time uh, obama ran for president just lines and lines to a point where they had to put tents up outside to make sure people didn't get hot are you expecting This kind of participation in this election, even under the circumstances that we're under with uh, COVID-19? I
1: I am. I am. It'll be both in-person and by mail. And sadly, because Trump has politicized this, the in-person voters are much more likely to be Trump supporters. The mail-in voters are much likely to be Biden supporters. And that's because when Trump says, vote by mail is fraudulent, "Eh, except in Florida. (laughs) It's like, that's so nutty. So insulting to the intelligence of voters. But a lot of his voters used to vote by mail. I I know, I talked to a Republican strategist this morning. He's tearing his hair out. He's like, we used to bank senior citizen Republicans in the vote by mail program. And now Trump is undermining it. That's why he switched and said, well, but Florida's okay. So they're they're terribly worried. But I do think there will be a surge. We certainly saw it in 2018, pre-COVID. Pelosi's Democrats got the largest turnout in a midterm election since women got the right to vote a century ago. They're doing something, Democrats, to motivate voters and to bring them out. Uh, It's going to be harder with COVID. It really is. But that's why I want all of these these changes, right? Vote by mail or vote in a drop box. Or if you're healthy, go ahead and, and, and participate as a poll worker. Some states, my beloved Texas, where I grew up, they have early voting for something like two weeks before the election that's great. I love that. So if you can vote early, if you can vote by mail, if you can vote at a Dropbox, take some of the pressure off the system and and the the fear of getting the virus away from yourself.
0: All right. Let's talk about the development in the campaign that we are all waiting for at the moment of this Zoom cast, Uh, the running mate. Um, Which person... How do you think about selecting a route rather than put you on the spot right here? I will in a minute, but let's start with the how do you think about picking a a
1: running mate based
0: on what you say in the
1: book? Well, I uh, my the way I view it is completely different because of my experience with Bill Clinton. Uh, When he was running, I was in the room when it happened. And I, as you know, was pushing our old friend and former boss, Harris Wofford. Harris, from a conventional political strategist point of view, was the perfect running mate for Bill Clinton. Keep in mind, Clinton was barely 45. So Clinton was young. Harris was older. Clinton was Southern. Harris was from the Northeast. Clinton was Baptist. Harris was Catholic. Clinton was domestic. Harris had lived in Africa and India, had vast international experience. Uh, Clinton was a moderate. Harris was from the liberal wing of the party. He'd worked for JFK. He'd worked for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was a perfect match. Clinton interviewed Harris And uh, liked him enormously. He already knew him, but liked him enormously. Read his book, and he was definitely on the short list. But he interviewed Al Gore, someone with whom he didn't have much of a relationship at the time. They had been two very similar new Democrats in the Sun Belt, circling each other warily. Gore came in and just blew him out of the water with the interview, and he left. And Clinton's like, "That's who I'm going to pick." So I'm still thinking about Harris. I was like, "Well, come on, governor." What does he add? What does he bring? He's from the same region. He's the same religion. He's the same age. He's the same ideology. And he interrupted me. He said, Paulie, I might die. And I thought, oh, dear. And Joe has been through this even more intimately than me. (laughs) And what a good president is thinking of, and this is what I guarantee you Joe is thinking of, certainly what President Obama was thinking of. By the way, it was what Bush was thinking of. He didn't pick Dick Cheney for his animal magnetism you know, or Wyoming's three electoral votes. He wanted a governing partner. And that's, I think, what Joe's going to do. He's going to say, God forbid if I die, who can step in? And God willing, if I live, who's going to be my governing partner the way he was for President Obama? And those two worked so well together. And it was really a, a really amazing thing. Uh, and those two families are like family, are like one family. So that's what Joe's looking for. I can't peer into his soul and see that. You know, I, I just don't know.
0: Do you have a personal, I, I represent an audience member here. I'm, I, it's, it's no longer me trying to put you on the spot, but I have, I have to represent someone listening or watching this and say, is there
1: someone you think Biden should pick? I, I just, it all depends on the chemistry. Honestly, and I'm sorry to dodge as a political strategist. I no longer believe that all you need regional balance or in that nonsense. I believe that, whoever he picks, the party will rally around. Good Lord, the man won 45 primaries in caucuses 45. So he has a dominant position in the party. The most important Democrat who's not named Biden is Jim Clyburn, Congressman of South Carolina, legendary figure who really did deliver that nomination to Joe. Joe was faltering. He was failing. He badly stumbled in Iowa, badly lost New Hampshire. Congressman Clyburn in South Carolina stepped in, lifted him up, and delivered him a landslide in the most important state—the first state with people of color voting—and that's what launched Joe. And believe me, Joe knows that. So I was very intrigued when Congressman Clyburn this week said this. He said, "I don't really care if he picks a black woman for the ticket. I want a black woman on the Supreme Court." Yeah, Jim Clyburn knows power, right? He knows politics. He's a genius. And by golly, I listen. To that. Of course right away, I'm for Michelle Obama for Supreme Court. I'll go on a limb on that. She would be my first, second, third choice. Uh, She's brilliant. She's charming. She would get nine to nothing votes on everything because she's impossible not to love and admire. Uh, But for the ticket, I think Mr. Clyburn's right. Whoever he picks, we'll all rally around. I want to go back to your book
0: because, um, you know, one of the things you're great at is really running the numbers. And you gave us some like staggering numbers in this book about earned media, this this thing in politics called earned media, which is not the media that you buy political ads to get, but just the kind of coverage and exposure that you get via the news. Trump was is very, very good at this. Um, how can team Biden compete with that?
1: They, they can't. Because even when he wasn't president, when he was just a reality show host, Donald Trump got more earned media than all the other candidates for president combined. And that includes Hillary Clinton, arguably the most famous woman in the world. He dominated it. And you know, he dominated it with shtick, with performance art, with I think racism and sexism, but he dominated. And he is of the mind that all publicity is good publicity. He's the guy who his first marriage was falling apart, and he's the guy who put it on the front page of the paper. I mean, who does that? I mean, lots of people have marital problems. I really don't judge. But good night. Who calls the New York Post and leaks to them? My mistress said it's the best sex she ever had. Donald Trump does that. So he has this animal-like genius of, of garnering free press. And there's a method to his madness. He uses it to divert. I believe that Trump uses division for diversion. So Hurricane Maria bearing down on Puerto Rico, devastated that island. Our president and our administration did not respond well. Mr. Trump was flat-footed. His emergency relief people weren't there. and The people of Puerto Rico, American citizens all, were suffering. You know what Trump did? He attacked Colin Kaepernick of the 49ers for taking a knee. Now, it's not that he didn't mean that racist attack on that black quarterback. He probably did. I believe Trump probably means these racist things. But he also understood that all of us would go, hey, wait a minute. Why is he attacking Cap and take our eyes off of millions of Puerto Ricans, uh, literally without power, metaphorically or or, or literally? Um, and it worked. Um, so so Democrats have to be aware of that, and I think what they need to do, and this is what Biden needs to do, they, he needs to, particularly on the attacks, when he says, "Oh, your son's a horrible person," Joe needs to not defend his family; he needs to defend yours. He should say that. Look, my family's going to be, fine. my son is great. My goodness, he's got an Ivy League degree and he's been on various corporate boards and he's a very successful lawyer. So he'll be fine no matter what. So don't worry about my family. Worry about yours. Donald Trump is attacking my family because he won't defend yours. And that's the way to turn it. That's what Obama used to do. That's what Clinton used to do. That's what the greats do. They don't answer in a literal linear way. They say he's attacking, like they hold it up. They objectify it and they say, OK, here's this attack. Why do you think he's doing this? Do you think he really cares? By the way, if anybody cares about uh, the children of politician engaging in corrupt practices, I, I don't really think it would be Mr. Trump, <laughs> whose children are making millions of dollars off foreign governments and the federal government as he's president. So it's not that. It's that he wants to divert from the fact that he's in court right now trying to take away your protections for pre-existing conditions. That's, I think, the way Joe needs to respond to this. And do you feel like Joe Biden
0: as a candidate who is known for his empathy? Like, this is the part that I think campaign people like you who would be looking most forward to is just the trail, being out there with the voters. This go round? you know, the campaign is not going to be run that way because of COVID. Is, is there a chance for Biden to break
1: through with this strategy? That's a great point, Brian. It's so much harder. I mean, look, how many times I've already said I wish I was there in person, right? Um, there's nothing like person to person. And Joe Biden is a superior person to person politician because he makes contact, because he actually cares, because he has that deep wellspring of empathy that you spoke of. So when you take that away from him, you really cost Joe a lot. At the same time, Trump is a particularly gifted performer. He's really good at these big rallies. Now, people like me may not like them, but his folks love him. It's like their version of a, a you know, Super Bowl and the Disney World and a Grateful Dead concert. It's like everybody. So he's lost one of his superpowers, too. Um, and so uh, Joe can, should, I think is, showing his empathy as best he can now, even if it's on Zoom calls or even if it's virtually visiting hospitals. Um, he needs to do that uh, because David Axelrod, the great strategist of President Obama's successful presidency, uh, says, when we fire a president, we want the remedy, not the replica. So if your problem with Trump's is that he's too narcissistic, which there are some people who think that, empathy is the answer to narcissism. And in this sense, Democrats were very wise. They picked the antithesis of, uh, of, of Mr. Trump. Some of the Democrats running, you know, they were out there dropping F-bombs themselves. They were going to be just as vulgar and just as divisive. And there was a theory that Democrats wanted their own Trump, right? Biden had a different theory. He's like, matter meet antimatter. You know, narcissism meet empathy. So he's not going to be slinging F-bombs or I, I hope he doesn't attack Trump's kids. I know I just made a snide comment, but I hope he doesn't. Um, I hope he keep, makes it about your kids.
0: Will Biden's relationship with China and Ukraine
1: be a serious issue. Sure. Trump will make it one. Um, uh, Joe Biden went into Ukraine at the behest of the president of the United States and got them to fire a corrupt prosecutor. Um, that was a very good thing. Now, Trump claims, oh, that prosecutor was about to indict Joe's son. Is not true. In fact, he had declined to. <laughs> so if you want to protect your son, you'd keep the corrupt guy in there, right, who was not going to go after this country. And, and no one in Ukraine, in the government, who has investigated this to a fairly well, or in our government, no one has found any wrongdoing uh, by Biden's son. Uh, and in China, I think China could be one of the critical swing states of this election because Trump has had this odd whipsaw relationship with China. Some days he's out there attacking them viciously uh, and slapping tariffs on uh, that only hurt Americans. Uh, and other days, like when COVID struck, He's apologizing for Xi Jinping. He's telling us that the Chinese communist leader is doing a great job. When the Chinese Communist Party made Xi Jinping president for life, of course, no free elections there. It's not a free society like ours. They just declare him president for life. You know what Trump said? He said, oh, I'd like to try that here. Now, can you imagine Ronald Reagan saying that or JFK or Barack Obama? Oh, gee, I think the communists have a good system. So Joe needs to be on the offense on China. He needs to tell people, as I did earlier in this broadcast, that Trump apologized and for Xi Jinping, believed Xi Jinping's lies about COVID, shipped him 17 tons of our personal protective equipment so that our nurses and doctors and EMTs and orderlies and physician's assistants couldn't have the protections they need. I think he needs – by the way, the Trump family has gotten dozens of trademarks, coveted trademarks from the Chinese communist government while Trump has been president to protect their intellectual property, but not American companies' intellectual property or other companies' intellectual property. So I think that that's going to be a critical tactical engagement. And uh, I think, uh, I know, a lot of the people around Biden are kind of China hawks, Uh, and Susan Rice being one of them. I think that's a very good thing. I do think we got to be tough on China. I think Trump's right when he is, (laughs) but half the time he's not. Half the time he's soft on China. So
0: you mentioned this intellectual property situation. Uh, A journalist decides to write a piece about that. may even wind up on CNN on the same split screen with you and a few other people talking about it. President Trump quickly dismisses it as fake news. Is the term fake news as effective? Is it more effective now um, with Trump voters? Are, Are... All of the Trump voters still grabbing this term, fake news, as as a
1: way to look away. Yes, yes, that's a good point. Um, Now, there's a dwindling number of Trump voters. There are a great many of them. Lincoln Project has been central to this. A great many Trump voters have peeled away. Um, But those that remain are deeply distrustful of the media and hateful of the media. We had a guy on CNN, this may be the first year of Trump's presidency, Just a Trump voter, no normal guy. It seemed like a very charming, bright man who in a focus group that CNN broadcast literally said to our reporter, if Jesus Christ came down from the cross and told me that Donald Trump did something bad, I would say, wait a minute, Jesus, I got to check with Mr. Trump. Okay, that is literally shoot a man on Fifth Avenue uh, category. So he does have uh, folks who will willfully ignore facts and he feeds that. Uh, he undermines the free press, he undermines the federal judiciary, he undermines free elections. He is, I believe this, he is an autocrat wannabe. And, um, you know, maybe it's a good thing that he's so inept. You know, the whole Trump presidency has been a match race between stupid and evil. And the autocrat stuff is really evil, but maybe thank goodness he's really stupid and fully gotten his arms around it the way Putin has in Russia. Um, but I, I think it's a it's a terrible problem. Um, Nobody, no politician likes the the press. We bang on you guys all the time, but you have to respect it. There's a reason our founders enshrined it very, very first thing, the very, very first amendment. So we have to have a free press and he's our first president. They all complain. Oh my gosh, you should have heard Clinton behind closed doors Um, (laughs) or any of them, but that's okay. That means you're doing your job. And, and for this guy to be systematically undermining them, and we're paying the price now. So when, An expert like Dr. Fauci comes on CNN and he tells people, wear a mask. Millions of Americans have been primed by Trump to say, well, that's a lie. That's fake. And this is where it is literally killing us that Trump has undermined faith in media and in news and in
0: science. I have gotten a few questions here from the audience about the Electoral College. Um, Should Democrats be making this more of an issue, the electoral college and just, you know, I don't even have to say the the electoral college determines the vote, not the popular vote, determines the result, not the popular vote. Is this something that Democrats should be working harder to change?
1: Is it going to resonate? I I think they need to work hard to change it on the state level, not right now, (laughs) because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're in the middle of an economic collapse. But uh, there's a guy in the Bay Area, Steve Silberstein, who I know, who is the, uh, a big supporter of the national popular vote movement. I write about it in my book. This is a terrific idea. You can work around the Electoral College without changing the Constitution. You know, amending the Constitution is very cumbersome. Small states will never go for it. So we can't it, – it, practically, we can't do it. But what Steve and others have figured out is if a state decides – states get to allocate their electors any way they want – in fact, when George Washington ran, people didn't vote. The legislature just picked the electors. So there's actually nothing in the Constitution that says you and I have a right to vote for president. I think that's crazy, but that's the truth. So in fact, they could, they could choose, they could California legislature and the governor could sign a law that says the winning coach of the Cal Stanford game gets to pick our electors. They can do anything they want. Now every state has an electoral code. An election code, and they require elections. Um, but California is part of this. There's an interstate compact now. Um, Maryland was one of the first that I heard about it because I'm up in the DC area. Uh, and it's so each state in this compact has passed a law that says if states in the aggregate amounting to 270 all agree, we're not there yet. Something at like 214, though. If 270 electoral states agree, then California's electoral votes will not go to the winner of California. They'll go to the winner of America. They'll go to the winner of the national popular vote. Uh, and a, a, a whole lot of states have done this. I think Colorado's recently joined, and I think they're around 212 or 214. They're getting there. I would love that. Uh, first, I'm from a big state. I'm from Texas. Um, and Texas is like California. It's just an ATM machine uh, for the politicians, and they never campaign there for real. Because California has, has mostly my lifetime, well, my adult lifetime, been kind of very good for the Democrats. Texas has been very good for the Republicans. Texas changing. But I want my president to have to campaign hard in all the states, in big, diverse states, in small states. And, you know, you you have situations where uh, New Hampshire, great state, they have four electoral votes. Politicians are going to spend more time in New Hampshire with four electoral votes than California. Okay, that's crazy. So I I like this workaround, uh, and you can do it without changing the Constitution, but uh, I wouldn't raise it right now. I wouldn't advise Joe. I don't advise Biden. I don't advise any politicians anymore. But if I were to advise him, I have it in the book because I think it's interesting, but I wouldn't want to run on that right now when people are staying up at night worried about sending their kid back to school because she might get a deadly virus. That's far more important.
0: Since you were uh, ticking off some individual states, and I don't mean that you ticked them off, but I mean that you were listing them. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> um, I, you know, a lot of the more recent polling is suggesting that a state like Georgia in the Deep South could flip. Do you think this is a real possibility um, in this upcoming election
1: uh, and why? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've spent a lot of time in Georgia. I've worked in Georgia. Uh, The late, great Zell Miller was a mentor as well as a client. He's the guy who introduced me to Bill Clinton. And so I I love that state. And it is changing very quickly. All states are changing based on the voting patterns of college-educated white people. Uh, And that's a big mouthful, college-educated white people. Political consultants used to have a shorthand for college-educated white people. We called them Republicans, right? No Democrat ever wins them. Barack Obama, pretty good politician. He lost college-educated voters by 11, white voters, college-educated whites by 11, and won comfortably twice. Women were a little better. He only lost them by three. But look what's happened since then. President Obama loses them by three. Hillary wins them by seven. College-educated women, white women, college-educated white women. They're disproportionately in the suburbs. So we go from minus three to plus seven. That's really good, Hillary. Guess what? Pelosi's team... Two years later, they didn't lose by three. They didn't win by seven. They won by 20. And in the polling I'm seeing now, Biden is winning by 39. A a group that Obama lost by three. So white people in the suburbs are really changing, number one. Number two, in Georgia, as a son of the South, you know this, there is a reverse great migration. The grandchildren of the African-Americans who left because they Couldn't stomach segregation after the Second World War. And they moved up north. They moved to Chicago. They moved to Newark. They moved to Detroit. They moved to New York. They moved to Boston. They're coming home and they're coming home to Atlanta because it is such an economic powerhouse. It is so richly, wonderfully diverse. And so Georgia has this terrific influx of very well off, very well educated African American folks who are coming back to where their grandparents had lived. So that's really changing Georgia politics lightning fast. I think in a fair election, Stacey Abrams is your governor, uh, who's a remarkable talent. So yeah, I think it is in play for those two reasons. Um, Most states don't have that influx of African Americans coming from the North, but every state, every state, the votes of white people, particularly women in the suburbs are moving so fast. And I consider it Newton's third law of motion for reaction is equal and opposite reaction. The action was Trump's dominance with working class whites. I mean, when I was working for Brock, I mean, for, 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 for Harris Wofford, we'd go out, you were with him, go out to Manesson, Pennsylvania. Southwestern PA, they're all steel workers and coal miners, and they're all Democrats 30 years ago when, when, when you were traveling with them. Today, they're all Trump people. I mean, I saw people in Southwest Pennsylvania who were the, like the county chairman for Bill Clinton and Al Gore. We're now the county chairman for Donald Trump. So working class whites, Democrats have completely lost them. And it breaks my heart. But the the reaction has been that college educated whites are like, well, wait a minute. You know, it's so weird to me. When I was a kid, my whole life, the guys whose names were stitched over their pockets, they were Democrats. Right. And the guys whose uh, initials were embroidered on their French cuffs, they were Republicans. And now they're switching. It's just an amazing realignment. So it's long way of saying it puts Georgia in play, puts your native North Carolina in play, Brian, you would know better. Um, I even think it puts my beloved Texas in play.
0: All three of those states have uh, sizable rural populations. And I've heard some really good reporting on NPR about the importance of the rural vote. Why has it seemed over the years that the... Republican Party is better at reaching rural voters than the Democrats? And and what can Democrats do to change this?
1: Well, because they have been, though. I mean, I give them credit. You know, they, they go out there and, and they've asked for their votes. They, they, they convey a sense that they carry their concerns. It's one of the things I'm proudest of in this book is that I worked hard. I grew up in a small town. I spent a lot of time in, in rural uh, Virginia. Uh, and so I care deeply And so I spent a lot of time studying this and looking at this and wrote a chapter on it. And I'm proud to say the first person I sent it to was Willie Nelson. It's a Texas thing. Willie has been the greatest champion of family farmers in America for four decades. And he really knows farm folks and farm policy. And I'm proud to say Willie really liked this chapter. He even gave me a blurb for the book. I may be the only guy in the world whose book was blurred by Bill Clinton and Willie Nelson. First off, there's a great singer-songwriter from Mississippi called Steve Forbert, who has a song that says, You cannot win if you do not play. So Democrats have to show up. Um, and I, I think we did abandon them first. Second, we have to feel their pain. You know, Diane and I, my wife and I, we, we just had our 31st wedding anniversary. It was great. And we had all the boys. They're all 20-somethings now. We had all the boys. And I'm like, you know, feeling like the wise old man. But I meant this. And I said, boys, here's the secret to a long relationship. It's three little words. It's not, I love you. That's like good for prom night. Yeah, I'm all for I love you. It's, I hear you. And, you know, my wife always says, if a, if a husband's alone in the forest, is he still wrong? And I say, yes, dear. <laughs> but, you know, so you have to listen in a relationship. And I think Democrats quit listening to rural folks. Um, we had an opioid crisis hit them. It's wiping out every year nearly as many people. As the entire Vietnam War killed Americans. 40,000, 45,000 a year. Last year, by the way, was no better with Trump in office. But... We have a crisis in rural America. Farm bankruptcies are at a record high. Farm incomes are at a record low. Farm suicides are rising and tragically high. The opioid crisis, you know, it, it, this, is, this is something Democrats have to feel their pain. We have to listen to them. And Democrats are not going to be with them on every issue. There's a lot of rural folks who have really different views, particularly about guns, other issues. That's okay. You have to respect them, listen to them talk to them, make the case. And by the way, you don't have to win them all. You just have to lose by less. You know, If Democrats just cut the margin to where Barack Obama had it, he won comfortably twice. So uh, it is like a plea for me. How can the party that built itself on listening, on feeling pain, on reaching out, on diversity, how can they exclude people? And so I'm passionate about this. I think it's a false debate and a stupid one in my party. Do we Focus on the base or do we reach out, you know, to the rural areas? You do both. The truth is, I, I, but like my friends at Fox News, I really do have friends there. They're forever, they're doing it now. Trump feeds this and I think it's racial. Oh, look at all the cities and they're run by Democrats and they're beset with drugs and crime. Oh, really? Go to rural America. They're just as beset by drugs and crime. And they're run by conservatives. So maybe there's real pain and, and maybe there's common pain. And Democrats ought to speak to that instead of using it to divide or denigrate. Trump does that. I think Democrats need to try to unite. But they, they, I do. I believe they have the same pain as the young people protesting in the streets. And Democrats ought to be listening to that and acting on it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the young people protesting in the streets. Um, I, I think about the 1992 campaign that you ran with Bill Clinton. You know there were some pretty palpable moments of protest during that campaign. You know this uh, Rodney King situation. Um, how does J- Joe Biden navigate this moment in American history? Uh, you know, just as as a presidential candidate who really needs this vote and
1: this has got to be part of his power. It it is. I, I, he begins with empathy, as he does with everything, and I think that's critically important. But it's also critically important that he spent eight years as an understudy to Barack Obama. Remarkably gifted man. And he watched and learned. Um, I think that's critically important. I I think that, again, you have to listen. You have to give voice. And this is very different. Did you know that the vast majority of white people in America support Black Lives Matter? I saw a poll, Brian, 58% of police officers support Black Lives Matter. So it's a consensus position in America. This is different from the civil rights movement in the 60s, right? These kids are really brave. And their parents, the old white guys like me, are listening to them and learning. And like all of us are like woke now, and we should be. And so things that people like me didn't see, didn't feel, because, you know, when it's hard to see what you don't live. And I, I try and have a lot of friends who are very diverse, but This has really been a wonderful epiphany moment for a lot of people. And I think Joe has been a part of that. But he's got to to listen and and heal. Um, At the same time, I will say these young people, it's very fashionable. I was born in 61. I'm at the end of the baby boom. It's very fashionable for baby boomers to spit all over these kids. Oh, they're terrible. They're lazy. They're awful. I love them. I absolutely love them. You see the dedication of the book is to my wife and kids. But I say to you and your generation, you're going to save us. I teach at Georgetown. I have four kids in their early 20s and mid-20s. I know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these young people. I think that they are going to be the next great generation, the greatest generation. You think about the 60s where people were burning the ROTC building on campus. None of that happening. Um, You think about my generation where I came of age when Reagan was president and all they wanted to do was make money and frankly, they were focused on themselves and not on their community. These young people are activists in exactly the way John Lewis wanted them to be. They're they're not blowing up anything. They're peacefully protesting and they're registering their sisters and brothers to vote. They're registering their moms and dads to vote. So it's the most patriotic way, the most patriotic thing you can do. We were born from protests like that. And so I, I really do love these kids. And Joe has to Earn their respect and their support. He's actually weaker with young people than I would like. Not as strong as Hillary was. Not as strong as Barack was. So he's got to really make the case to them. Uh, I think he can. But I, I'm t- I am just blown away by these kids. And I, as I say, I know it's fashionable for the old guys to like look down on them. But I, I just, I look up to them.
0: The people watching the news while this discussion has been going on, send me a piece of information that is very relevant i i am being told because i've been focused solely on you in this moment that cnn is reporting the vice presidential pick by joe biden is kamala harris
1: wow well uh, it couldn't print if it wasn't true that's my network Uh, well i
0: I was gonna say i'm i'm glad it's your network um this this, uh, this is coming this is hot off the phone screen right here um this is CNN. Now I'm still waiting. Yes, that's what it's. New York. New York Times has it too. Yes, I'm gonna look at my phone. We are in the middle. We're actually getting towards the end of this uh, this program, but we now have a fresh vice presidential pick. Wow. I've got it from the New York Times and from CNN. So in a way, we're. We can say where we were, what we were doing when Vice when Vice President Biden. Criticized. Yeah. I,
1: Brian Watt breaking the news for me. <laughs> All right. I'm a KQED listener anyway. So I just get you on the on the interwebs, you know.
0: <laughs> this is obviously going to be a big deal in California, a big deal here in the Bay Area. But h- how are you thinking about
1: what Kamala Harris brings to this ticket? Well, First, it is history. And what a wonderful history. Um, I, I've looked it up because i'm an expert people don't know this we've had 48 vice presidents every one of them white every one of them male so you know maybe it's time i it, just to achieve parity you'd have to have nothing but women until the year 2250 <laughs> so and which i'm all for right we've had 230 years my my guys my white men and, and some good some bad so first off it's history and that should be noted it's really important um When I worked in the White House, Brian, I had a portrait, uh, a big photographic portrait, big, on my wall of Barbara Jordan, who I'd had the honor of meeting. But my wife was one of her students. Barbara was a mentor of my wife's. And I revered her. And I always felt she belonged in the White House. So I put her up in the White House. and, and, And when President Obama, Senator Obama was elected, that's who I was thinking. I said that on the air. I said, I'm thinking of Barbara Jordan, who loved America when America didn't love her. And as an African American, you know that. Um, so, for this country finally to be throwing open the doors of opportunities to the Barack Obamas and Kamala Harris's, late but wonderful. And so that's the first thing as a history. Now, just as a strategist, she's really talented. People should go and look at the tape of her questioning William Barr. William Barr is brilliant. He is brilliant, and she carved him up. It was. It was. Oh. Seriously, it was like one of those old tapes of a Mike Tyson fight. It was just – you wanted to stop it. She just destroyed him. She's absolutely brilliant. I think she'll be very effective on the campaign trail uh, if, in fact – again, I've seen as. But I just – so I think it's wonderful. I think it's a terrific choice. Uh, I, I couldn't be happier. And I think she would bring a whole lot to, to the campaign. But also, as we were saying, I think she is clearly the one who has found a rapport with Joe to be the governing partner. I know this. He, he, he has said this to a friend of mine. What I want is what I did with Barack. When the door closed, you had the cabinet meeting, the cabinets divided. And then you take 10 paces, you go in the oval, you close that door. Who's the one person I want with me. That's what he was for president Obama. That's that was his standard. It's the highest standard you could set. And God, I couldn't be happier. I have to say, I, I just think it's a terrific, terrific choice.
0: But this has been a really, really big decision for vice president Biden. Uh, it, and it, it, seems as if it has been more fraught. It might just be the news climate that we live in. Um, in past presidential campaigns, do you remember it being this fraught?
1: Yes, actually. Yes, seriously. It becomes, it's, it's sort of story inflation, right? Too many reporters chasing too few facts. <laughs> so we inflate it. Um, but it, I think he's handled it wonderfully, respectfully. Um, nobody's uh, uh, privacy has been breached. I did think it was loathsome. I will say that Ed Rendell, former chairman of my party, was saying bad things. Oh, she's got – what did he say? She rubs people the wrong way. Really? Others were saying she's too ambitious. How can you be so stereotypically sexist, right? Uh, Believe me, I've worked for a lot of politicians the last 35 years. 100% have been ambitious. May have been women. Actually, you know, I worked for both Feinstein and Boxer in in your community, two Bay Area uh, women who are pretty impressive themselves. Wish that we'd had a country that could put them on the ticket 20 or 30 years ago. But thank God that uh, that Kamala is, is uh, apparently going to be the choice. I couldn't be happier. I, I, I like her personally. I admire her professionally. Uh, I am impressed with her politically.
0: Since you mentioned ambition there, there is a uh, listener audience member who wants to know if you have any advice for a young Democrat running
1: for office right now. Oh my gosh! First, thank you. This has never been a harder time to run. Never been a harder time to serve. You know, it's just really remarkable. Um, and so, first, thank you. Seriously. Um, second, it's it's like every cliche that an old dad says to a young person. You know, is is follow your heart. Listen though. Listen to lead. This is what the country wants more than anything. And we talked about it with rural folk, but it's the same in the suburbs and it's same in the cities. I do think politicians you know, sometimes think they should have been given two mouths and one ear, but they weren't. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. So I, I mean it. Listen to your folks and be open, especially to the criticism. Bill Clinton taught me that. He did. He was the most open-minded grown-up I'd ever known. And even the critics, he used to say um, – Lincoln used to say this, but Clinton would quote Lincoln, saying, our critics are our best friends because they point out our flaws. So, it, and, and what Hillary would say is you got to develop a hide like a rhino. So that's part of listening because you can hear a lot of things you don't like, and a lot of things you don't want to hear, and a lot of things that are unfair and untrue. So open ears, thick skin. That would be my advice.
0: So we just have a few minutes left. And what I want to ask you, I, I, am, I am thinking about the last four years, really from this point four years ago, uh, a couple months later. Maybe a month or so later, I actually had dinner with you. And there was this sense that Hillary was going to win, and she didn't. And I would say that it was already a very, very exhausting campaign for the media and for anybody who consumes political news. And the last four years have been pretty exhausting and pretty high anxiety. Are you anxious about what this... Country is going to see from now really until you you could even say the end of the year because the actual vote election day is just somewhere out there in the middle
1: of what we're about to go through. I'm terribly worried. I'm terribly worried. I, I, I'm worried Trump might win. He did the last time. I'm terribly worried about foreign interference. I'm worried that uh, the Russians would use deep fake videos, which did not exist. I go into this in the book. Did some research. Found out that there's technology. You can make a video, not like these clumsy ones they've made about Nancy Pelosi, where it's obvious they doctored it. You can make really good ones. And the Russians have that capacity. So I'm worried about a a legitimate Trump win. I'm worried about foreign interference. I'm worried about voter suppression. Uh, I'm a little worried about overconfidence, which really was a problem the Democrats had last time. A little less this time. I do think that they get it. But I have a friend the other day, a fellow Democrat, who said, oh, Joe's got it in the bag. And I was like, man, He didn't even have it in a shopping cart, (laughs) much less in the bag. And so it's it's a very long way. And I guess the thing I'm most worried about, and I I do write about this in the book, is that for the first time in American history, there is a legitimate concern that the incumbent president will not peacefully surrender power if defeated. This has never, never been an issue. We've had much more bitter politics. Go back to the campaign of 1800 where uh, Thomas Jefferson challenged the incumbent president, John Adams. And the electoral college was locked. It went to the house and it took days and days and something like two dozen ballots. And then finally they chose Jefferson. Um, So we've been through this before, but never, never. Adams was so angry. I don't think he even attended Jefferson's inauguration, but he did relinquish power peacefully and respectfully. And by the time he died, he became close friends again with Jefferson. But we have a president now who I really am concerned will not relinquish power so it's not fair, but it means Biden has to win by so much that no reasonable person will believe it when Trump says that it's fraudulent. There's only two results in Trump's mind I win or it's a fraud that's only and and even when he did win the last time he said it was a fraud which is bizarre so I am i'm I'm very anxious I wish I could tell your viewers and listeners oh it's all great everything's it's not. You know, I never, before this Trump era, fully understood what Benjamin Franklin said when they finished drafting the Constitution. He's walking out of Independence Hall and a woman asked him, what form of government do we have, Dr. Franklin? He said, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. And, you know, for 12 generations, we've kept it. And I'm, uh, uh, this is, this is our time, our turn. And thank God these, this younger generation (laughs) will help us uh, to keep it. Paul, thanks a bunch. Thanks for joining the Commonwealth Club. Brian, what a joy. It's so great to see you. And thank you for breaking news. Well, this,
0: this has been really awesome. Um, I knew I would be somewhere cool when we found out who this would be. And here I am with you and a lot of other people with the Commonwealth Club. Paul Bagala, the author of You're Fired, political strategist, consultant, uh, crazy mastermind, mad scientist. Thank you. Thanks very much to our audience for watching and participating live, sending us great questions. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Brian Watt, and now this program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned.
1: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.